Welcome to All About Capital Campaigns, a podcast that provides fuel for your nonprofit's growth. Each week, hosts Andrea Kilstedt and Amy Eisenstein, co-founders of the Capital Campaign Toolkit, provide practical tips about raising more money for your nonprofit organization. The Capital Campaign Toolkit is a support system for nonprofit leaders who are running capital campaigns. At CapitalCampaignToolkit.com, you can download a step-by-step guide for your capital campaign and get many other free resources. This podcast is recorded on a live webinar every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can join the live session and get your questions answered by signing up today at ToolkitTalks.com. yesterday to write a blog post about capital campaign timelines. And some of you may know that we have developed at the Capital Campaign Toolkit kind of a nifty graphic showing showing the seven phases of a campaign and how they break out over sort of a range of months, each of them. And what we find is that many campaigns take somewhere between 18 months at a minimum, but more likely somewhere between two and three years. And that if you have a, if you represent an organization with a far flung donor base, your campaign may well, you know, if it's a national organization with donors all over the place, your campaign may may well take more, much more time than that, because you may have to roll it out in, in location by location. And as I started looking at the timeline thinking, well, you know, what have we written about and what haven't we? We've talked a lot about the fact that campaigns break into a quiet phase and then a kickoff and then a public phase. But you know what we almost never talk about is this final phase of a campaign, which I think about as following up and following through. And that, you know, we make short shrift of it. You might think that your campaign comes to an end when you celebrate success, right? When you go over your goal and you have a party or you have multiple parties and everybody cheers and, and you know, you send up a big hurrah and you may think your campaign is over. But in reality, there's a whole big part of your campaign that happens after that. You have to, among other things, you have to collect pledges, Right. Because with campaigns, people tend to pledge, pledge their gifts over three years, sometimes longer than that. You have a lot of people who helped make the campaign a success. And you have to think carefully about how to communicate with them, not just for the um, the collecting of their money, but for reporting on the project. Right. Once you've collected the money and then the building is being built and the new programs are being started and all the stuff you do as a result of their money, in some way that continues to be a part of the campaign. Because if you forget your donors, when it comes to reporting on what their money made possible, it's likely that what should have felt like a great success will become a little sour. Right. And I just had an experience like that, which triggered all that thinking for me. In fact, that it wasn't for a big campaign, but somebody asked asked me for for some money. And for a variety of reasons, I was happy to to make the gift, which which was a pretty good sized gift for me. 
And he was delighted and I was delighted. And I got a quick thank you. Thank you letter, which was terrific. And everyone felt good until I realized sometime later that the project had happened and I never got an invitation to it. Right. And I thought to myself, holy mackerel, he was happy to take my money. And he was so busy getting other people's monies or doing the project that he totally forgot that that I actually had probably given one of the largest gifts to this project of his. Now it was a small project. It's not thousands and thousands of dollars, but still the point, the point was that as I started to think about that, I thought, you know, if he comes back to me for another gift for the next project he's gonna do, am I gonna be inclined to give? I don't think so. And that little story of mine is exactly what happens when you don't pay a lot of attention to the final follow up and follow through part of your campaign. And you need to be sure as you're planning your campaign that you are fully staffed up during that period, because all of you know how much detail, detailed effort goes into tying up all those loose ends and making sure that every donor feels as though they are well communicated with and well appreciated long after their money has come in. And that in some way is the tie rod. I like that idea. Is the tie rod between your campaign that you just finished and the next campaign, which you're going to start, right? How well you do that at peace. And you may not want to think about the idea that you're going to start another campaign as you're winding down your campaign, but the reality is that too often we see organizations that want to do campaigns and they say, well, you know, either the last campaign ended kind of funkily or we didn't stay in touch with our donors between campaigns. So the reality is when you finish a campaign, you have to be thinking about the next campaign. Otherwise, your organization is set up badly and you're, you know, too often we hear from people, well, we're ready for a campaign, but, you know, we didn't really thank our donors properly last time or we didn't wrap up and we haven't kept in touch and this and that. How many times have we heard that, Amy? All the time. And it gets particularly upsetting when that's what we hear about the lead donors, right? Yeah. When the largest donors who gave, you know, half a million dollars or a quarter of a million dollars. And those are the people you fell out of touch with. It's like, and why did you fall out of touch with them? Because somehow you were intimidated by them or you didn't quite know how to get back in touch with them or you didn't feel comfortable in approaching them again or whatever the reason was. Even the development director left. But there still needs to be a plan in place. Whoever comes next needs to pick up that torch and run with it. So So. that means, actually, because it's not uncommon at the end of a campaign for an executive director to leave, a development director to leave. It's not uncommon, right, for people to sort of plan their career paths. Say, well, when this campaign is over, then I'm going to move to my next job or I'm going to retire or whatever it is you're going to do. But before you do that, you have to plan effectively so that all of this follow up and follow through is laid out so the next person can pick it up where it should be and can really move every part of it so that every donor and every volunteer feels as though they are a part of your world, not just when it's time to ask them for money, but when it's time to feel great about what their money accomplished. 
All right. That was my soapbox. Excellent. So I'm going to say one thing about timelines. I'm going to add one thing to our introductory conversation, and then we're going to go to questions because you've asked a lot of great questions already. So the one thing that always strikes me that people are surprised by when they see our timeline graphic, and you can go to our website, uh, capitalcampaigntoolkit.com, and click on Toolkit for Nonprofits, and you will see uh, our graphic timeline. But the one thing that I think surprises people most is how long the quiet phase is and how short the public phase is. And you know, it makes sense once you understand that you're raising 70 or even 80% of your dollars in the quiet phase before you ever go public, before you do a press release or publicly announce the campaign or send direct mail pieces or do a phone-a-thon or, or crowdfunding. So you're going to raise the vast majority of the dollars for the campaign in the quiet phase by talking to individual donors. Um, so once you think about that, it makes sense that that piece would be longer. Often that that will last for a year or even 18 months, um, but that's not quick. And, and your public phase, which is where you're raising the last 10, 20, 30% of your campaign dollars is quick, three to six months. Um, you know, don't drag it out over a year or two. That's not the way it goes. So I think that that's one thing that you know, may surprise folks. They think that the that the public phase is this long, long, you know, a anniversary, year-long celebration public phase. No, uh, quick. Um, once you're ready to go public, you want to wrap up that campaign as quickly as you can. And we have it on our timeline as approximately three months. You know, um, the best way to explain why that's important is with is by by getting people to think about an image. Right. So imagine an organization that is having a campaign to raise, I don't know, five million dollars right, to renovate their building. And they get to the public phase, they get to the kickoff and they put up a big thermometer in front of their building. Right. And they put, you know, they fill it in in red up to you know, they've already raised a five million. They've already raised three million dollars and they figure they're going to take the next two years to rear the next year to raise to raise the last two million. And every time someone drives by that corner in the community and they look at that. That thermometer for the next year. Right. It's it barely gone like anywhere. It doesn't move. Right. And that's the image. The idea of a campaign, the public phase of a campaign is that you you ha- you are marshalling energy. It's got to feel energetic. It's got your thermometer, whether it's a visual thermometer or just the internal thermometer, has got to move. So it's got to be short and punchy and full of action and full of energy and you have to and sometimes what people do actually is that some of the gifts that we're already in we're we're already committed during the quiet phase of the campaign you just haven't announced them so that in the in the public phase of the campaign you and the donor will know donors will know what you're doing you can hold those gifts back and when you need a boost to show that the that the campaign is getting to its goal, you can announce one of the gifts that has actually quietly been made been made earlier, but hasn't yet been counting been counted. That sounds like cheating, and I suppose it is, but it's effective. 
So it, it, it is, I mean, and it's not cheating in the sense that you tell, you ask the donor if it's okay, if you don't count their gift, right? You know, it's committed, you, but you want to announce it during the, during this period of the quiet of the public phase, because you have to be able to, to show that you show progress, even during little lull periods, right? That's a clever approach. Don't you think, Amy? Absolutely. You're so clever, Andrea. <sighs> All right. All right. Let's go to some of these good questions. So Thea is asking about a completed written campaign plan and where she might see an example of one. And Thea, here's the deal. Um, campaign plans are pri proprietary. Most organizations aren't sharing them. So you probably are not going to find, unless somebody in the chat wants to share their campaign plan with Thea, um, of course, then we can't promise that it is, it's, you know, a great campaign plan, but I'm happy for you to exchange names and email addresses in the chat and, and, and trade samples of campaign plans. But here's what I would tell you. We can tell you what components need to be in your campaign plan. And certainly um, we have all the components in the capital campaign toolkit for paying members of the capital campaign toolkit. But what you need is a gift range chart a case for support, a list of donors called the depth chart that corresponds or correlates to the gift range chart. You need a budget, you need a timeline, you need a donor recognition plan. Uh, policies. Oh, policies. Gift, gift policies, yes. Yeah. So there's, so instead of thinking about the capital campaign plan, think about what are the components? What do we need to make decisions about? What do we need to have? What documents need to be in the campaign plan? And I think that will help you get farther than, you know, what's this massive campaign plan? It's, it's, a, it's a, the sum of the parts. Um, and anything else about that, Andrea? And then if you put all those parts together and put a cover saying this is the campaign plan and put a, you know, an end page and you and you hook them together, then you have your campaign plan. Right? And you oh, you put a table of contents, right? Or an index. And oh. then it's then it looks remarkably like a campaign plan. In fact, it is a campaign plan. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yes. So um, yeah. All right. Uh, Caitlin's asking, what is the best way to present a capital campaign on Giving Tuesday? And actually, Amy Shower gave you an excellent answer in the chat box. Uh, Amy, thank you for chiming in. And I think the simple answer is that unless you're in the public phase of your campaign asking the community for support, um, it's not time to present your capital campaign on Giving Tuesday. So use Giving Tuesday if you're going to use it for your annual fund. It is unless you're in that short end of your campaign, you've already raised 70 or 80% of your dollars and you're ready to go public or you're in the public phase of your campaign, um, Giving Tuesday is not, probably is not part of your capital campaign. Right. We've heard from a number of people in our world uh, saying that they either haven't participated in Giving Tuesday or that they have used it to thank donors rather than to ask for more money. They, you know, the sense that it's sort of complicated is a lot of time and energy and just simply gets in the way of their larger, more effective fundraising plans. So there's there's some 
questions about Giving Giving Tuesday. And, and I agree with what Amy Schauer and Amy Eisenstein have suggested that that unless you're at a very particular time in your campaign where you're almost at the end, then you can celebrate it during Giving Tuesday and get it over your goal in one day. Now, that would be terrific. But that's, <laughs> you know, it's not likely that, that you're going to be exactly in that in that place. Um, All right, Andrea, I'm going to let you start uh, kicking off with Haley's question. And Haley wants to know if a strategic plan is necessary to begin a capital campaign. So, Haley, here's what to know about that. You have to know what it is you're going to raise money for. Now, sometimes that grows out of a strategic plan or a long range plan. Sometimes it it comes from different places in an organization, right? Sometimes an organization knows that without doing a current strategic plan. So I hate to say that you have to have a strategic plan. The organization needs to be planful, needs to know what it is doing and why it's doing it and what the why it is wanting to raise this money and what difference the money it's going to make to raise the money. So it, it, it they don't tend to work well if, you know, one cockamamie board member decides that, you know, that that you're that she's going to put up a quarter of a million dollars if the organization makes an addition to the facility and and the board itself hasn't approved that. Right. That you, you want to avoid these things that are just ad hoc decisions. It needs to somehow be grounded in the plan for the organization, whether that requires strategic planning or not is a second is another question. Excellent. All right, Tom, you're asking, how do you convince your board we need to do a capital campaign on the 50th anniversary? And how do we train them? They're not fundraisers and will not fundraise themselves. So there's two parts to your question. One is convincing your board we need to do a capital campaign on the 50th anniversary. And I think Andrea and I would argue that you don't need to do a campaign on your 50th anniversary. The question is, what do you need to do to grow your organization to the next level of program and service? And if that happens to fall on your 50th anniversary, okay. But um, a lot of people think that they need to have campaigns around a big milestone anniversary. And the reality is that an anniversary celebration is nice and it's wonderful to a, to celebrate all of your accomplishments, but an anniversary in and of itself is not motivating to donors, right? An anniversary looks backwards and says, look at all the great things we've done in the past. While a campaign is forward-looking, it talks about what are we going to do in the future? So it's fine to have a campaign that, that happens to fall or is coordinated some activities and events around your 50th anniversary, but really the hard work is figuring out what do you need to have a campaign for? What are the campaign objectives? You know, do you, how are you going to expand your programs and services? How are you going to get a few steps closer to accomplishing your mission? Then your board will be excited if you can come up with an exciting vision, but it's not your 50th anniversary. Um, no, so I just want to share with Tom, you know, Tom, you're not alone in asking that question. First of all, and we don't think it's the right way to go, but, but it is a perfectly 
normal way to begin thinking. And I understand why you think that. In fact, Bosede and I had a meeting recently with a prospective client for the toolkit. And essentially they said our organization is going to be 50 years old in next year, whenever, whenever it was coming up. And we want, we, the board has decided it wants to have a campaign to raise, get ready for it. million. And how do they want to raise that $50 million? Well, they're going to get a steering committee of 50 people and they're going to ask them each for a million (laughs) dollars. Now, honestly, this is doomed to failure. This, I understand that 50 is a nice round number, but it has nothing to do with the reason people give to this organization. The organization happens to have a wonderful mission and 50 50 million dollars because of a 50 50th birthday from 50 donors each of whom will give a million dollars touches none of it so beware that you don't fall into the anniversary trap right that's the anniversary trap okay all right so the second you're not alone Right. Don't yeah, don't feel bad. You're not alone. And like I said, lots of organizations, or maybe I didn't say this, but lots of organizations do plan campaigns around anniversaries because they do a big strategic plan for their 50th anniversary and they discover that they have all of these needs and this big vision. Then you can plan a campaign around it. Um, but the focus isn't the 50th anniversary. That's in part of the mes- messaging later on. But that's not the primary focus. Well, and one more thing about this, which is that if you do figure out what the next what the next 10 or 20 or 50 years are going to look like and you come up with a set of campaign objectives and you get ready to go, don't coalesce the campaign kickoff with your 50th birthday celebration. That's a mistake. Right. Have your 50th birthday celebration be your 50th birthday birthday celebration where you can talk about the the vision for the institution going forward and then have a separate event when the time is right for the campaign to kick off the campaign where you tell people how much money you've already raised and how how much money is left to raise. Right. But don't coalesce all those things just because you've got a 50th celebration coming up. Okay, so there was a second part to Tom's question, and it was it was about training his board who really are not fundraisers. So I, I think for everybody, how do we get our board members ready for a campaign, Andrea, you uh, yeah, I just get rid of these darn things. I'm just not looking at these. I, I that's all right. That's all right. I'll. Okay. It, it just th- his question was really, yes. how do you train your board? How do you get them ready for a campaign? They're right. not fundraisers. So what do what do how does an organization yes. get ready for a campaign if you have a board full of non fundraisers essentially or people without wealth or you know the list goes on and on. Well, and I think that's a wonderful and important question because most people have boards that are not made of fundraisers and that don't know very where the people don't know very much about campaigns. Right. That's a, that's I bet 80 percent of the people on this call or 90 percent have would say exactly the same thing. It's the rare organization that has a sophisticated fundraising board. Right. Particularly a rare, small organization. Even the big ones don't do very well on that score. So, so how the bigger question is how do you train your board? Right? That's an interesting question because it's bigger than saying, all right, we're gonna come in on our white horses with a magic wand and we're gonna sprinkle some 
some dust and all of a sudden your board will have become a sophisticated fundraising board that knows what they need to know about campaigns. That's not going to happen, right? You need to think about training your board and fundraising in a much, much more, what's the word, sort of a, a global way. What do, do they understand about fundraising for your annual, your annual fund? Do they do they do you train them to ask or to participate in your annual fundraising so they become comfortable with what it is to ask people for money? Do you involve them in in helping to craft the case for support, whether it's annually or for a campaign? Do you are they involved in 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 the in the planning that goes into to coming up with what your campaign is going to be about? Then do you take some time in board meetings where perhaps an or a board member from another organization that's been through a campaign comes and talks about their experience? Right there. You should use every board meeting, some little part of every board meeting to train your board. Right? People learn in little dribs and drabs, and you should train them in little dribs and drabs. And then once you've laid the groundwork for that, then when it comes to a campaign, you can hire a consultant, a local consultant. You can hire us to come and train your board so that they understand what capital campaigns are. You can download from the Capital Campaign Toolkit our downloadable, which is, I don't know, what every board member needs to know about capital campaigns or something it's, like that. It's in our resources section. So go to the Capital <laughs> Campaign Toolkit uh, website and go to the resources section and you'll find it. Um, Andrea, this summer we did a podcast interview with one of our advisors, Zan Blake, and she talked about um, learning and having everybody learn as board members together as opposed to training. I can't remember exactly how she put it, but anybody who's interested in this topic, go back and look at our podcast from July or August of, of this year, 2021. And look for the one with Zan Blake. I think she, I don't remember, I don't know if you remember exactly how she put it, but it was really excellent on, on getting your board to learn together as opposed to training. And uh, I'll try and find it and, and share it somewhere, but uh, that's where it is on, on the, in the July or August podcasts. All right, let's go to, let's see, Sarah, Sarah's asking, um, have you seen major campaigns? She's saying uh, eight or nine figure campaigns uh, completed without chairs. So, you know, maybe a smaller advisory group as opposed to specifically naming campaign chairs. And Sarah, I, you know, I think one of my questions would be sort of cooks in the kitchen, right? If, if no one's in charge, who's in charge? Who leads the meetings? Who... Uh, who makes final decisions. And so, and, you know, there's certain people that names that have gravitas in the community, who's, you know, who's going to be the letter signer. So I understand the need or the, the desire maybe for a, for a committee, but leadership by committee might be hard if everybody doesn't have a specific role. Uh, anybody on, in the chat, anybody not have a campaign chair? I've seen one, two and three campaign chairs. So, you know, you could have three co-chairs and they each play a different specific role. 
but I'd be curious to know if anybody didn't have any campaign chairs. Andrea, have you worked on a campaign with no chairs? No, but I've worked on a campaign with multiple chairs, right? Yeah. Which is not the same as just having everyone serve on an advisory committee, right? That we, there's something about someone being willing to step up and have the courage to say they're willing to lead a segment, a part of the campaign or be an honorary chair or a co-chair or, you know, lead one piece or another. There's something about the courage that it takes to do that that gives everybody else confidence in the campaign. Right. And I think we can't overlook that, that it, I mean, imagine actually, I don't think we think about this enough that, that when someone agrees to chair a campaign, think about the courage that that takes. I mean, particularly, you know, a community leader who has, who has a significant reputation in what, in whatever your community is. And they're asked to chair a campaign to raise more money for your organization than you've ever raised. And what is that person thinking? So that person's thinking, well, I, I think this organization is important. I believe what they're what they're doing. But what if they don't get to their goal and my name is up there? Right? Then I'm going to look like a fool. Right? They have to be quite sure that the campaign is going to succeed and they're going to put their name up there as a campaign chair. If they're going to stand up in public in public events at public events as the chair of the campaign. I, I think we need to understand what kind of an internal calculus people are making when they decide to agree to chair a campaign. And it, this is not an easy choice for anyone to do. Do I have the time? Do I have the will? Do I have the courage? Do I believe this is going to succeed? Do I believe that my name on this campaign is going to help make it succeed? Am I going to be willing to do what needs to be done in order to make it succeed, even if it means I'm going to have to give more than I thought I would than I thought I would give? So it's no surprise that it's hard to get a campaign chair. But it's also no surprise that if you do get a great campaign chair, it speaks volumes for whether your campaign is going to succeed or not. So that's a long answer to your question, but I think it is relevant about why, why it makes a difference when you have someone of substance in a community stand up and say, yes, I will, I will take a public stand on behalf of this campaign. All right, Carrie's asking, we need to raise seed funds to start the larger campaign. You know, how do we do that? And that is a great question, Carrie. We get that all the time. You know, it's true. You need money before you can start or decide to have a campaign. You may need to pay an architect. Uh, you, there, there are lots of feasibility study is technically pre-campaign and it can be expensive. And there's lots of costs associated with uh, seeding the larger campaign. So one of the things that we recommend is going to your board members. And, you know, maybe there's one or two board members, maybe the board as a whole and say, listen, you know, we are contemplating in your case, your example, a $23 million campaign. 
But before we can really go down that road, there are a few important things we need to do, like pay an architect, look at blueprints, you know, uh, hire a piece of land. Right. Secure a piece of land. Right. There's lot. There's lots of things. You might be hiring campaign counsel for for the planning and the feasibility study. Um, and so board members need to be willing to step up. In your case, your example is three hundred thousand dollars to even see if the campaign's viable sometimes. And so they make that commitment with the understanding that there is a possibility that it won't go through. Um, But often one or two or three board members either will put it up themselves or issue a challenge to the rest of the board and say, okay, you know, I'm going to put up $150,000 if the rest of the board puts up $150,000 as sort of a challenge match and say, this is just to see or just to go down the path of starting a campaign. And and this may not be your final campaign gift and we will probably be back to you for uh, a bigger campaign gift, but this is just the initial ask to get us started. Any other ways for seed funding? No, I think that's that's really right. And I've had an experience with that recently of my my favorite client in Providence, which I talk about periodically. And they, some years ago, they knew that they wanted to think about building a new building and and land is hard to come by there and the and the ideal piece of land came available in the right location for them and they didn't have money to to secure it so i think they went to five donors some of them were board members some of them were were people who were regular donors who had been involved with this organization from the beginning and they and five donors put up about a quarter of a million dollars i think that's about what it was actually and the understanding was that they would secure the land and if the building project didn't happen they could always sell it again right but but this money gave them gave them the seed money to actually secure and to hold the land which wasn't likely to be available again and now, fast forward the three years or four years, whatever it's been since then, now the organization has raised, I don't know, $11 million, something like that. There will be a building on this land. And looking at the donors to that, to the bigger campaign, every one of the people who put seed money in have given significantly to the campaign itself. So it, that's a very common, common way to think about to think about that. I, I would not encourage you to try to raise that money from the broad base, right? Raise that money from the people who can, who have the ability to give significantly, but get them to do an, a preliminary gift to help you get going. Excellent. So based on our, our last conversation a minute ago about campaign chairs, Todd is saying they don't have a campaign chair yet, but we're in the pre-feasibility study stage and have two co-chair prospects. And that's right, Todd, because often the feasibility study is what sort of unearths, for lack of a better term, helps you identify your your campaign chair or chairs. So you don't need to um, have that person right away. 
often they they emerge, I should have said, maybe not unearth, <laughs> emerge uh, through that feasibility study process. So I think you're right on there. All right, let's take our seventh inning stretch as we do in the middle of these. Yeah, literally and figuratively, everybody stretch, stretch, stretch. This is also my opportunity to tell you that next week on Toolkit Talks, we will be talking all about board members and board members' roles and responsibilities and how they engage in a campaign and what kind of questions they should be asking. So we are asking you to invite your board members to join us next next week for Toolkit Talks so that they can ask their questions. And we will be prioritizing, if we can, uh, questions from board members specifically about campaigns. So please do invite all your board members to join us next week. I mean, what's the best way for people to do that? What link should they send their board members? Yes, it's just uh, toolkittalks.com. And I will confirm that link, but um, just www.toolkittalks.com. And they can sign up and they will be sent the Zoom link um, and sent the invitation. So, okay. That's our seven. Tell them to come with their questions. If they have questions, tell yes. them they'll have an opportunity to put their questions in the chat. And we, as you know, we'll do our best to get to as many of them as we can. Um, yes. And uh, this brand, uh, Brandy is asking, will this be an appropriate session for churches who are building churches um, and starting campaigns? Absolutely. If you're, yes, uh, for sure. So bring your board members. And um, for some reason, my toolkit talks isn't opening. Some Maybe my website's slow, but it should be toolkittalks.com. And you actually, if you just go to capitalcampaigntoolkit.com, um, a, a box will pop up inviting them to join Toolkit Talks. You know what? That's even better. Um, send them right to capitalcampaigntoolkit.com. Uh, just our regular website and a box pops up inviting you to join Toolkit Talks. So, all right, Cheryl, you are asking a question. Uh, we're in the planning phase of our campaign and already have a leading pledge from one of our board members. Congratulations. Since the board is not in on the planning, do you think it's okay for the board, full board to be informed? I want to use it as a bit of momentum for the other board members. All right, wait, 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 wait. So the board is not in on planning what? Explain a little more. I need to know what the board is not in on. Because we hope the board knows that there's a campaign. Right. Somebody's already made a gift. Um, oh, they are in on the planning. It's oh, they a are in on the planning. Okay, okay. all right, all right, good, good. Um, so, uh, well, so you have to go to the board member who has made the gift and make sure that they are fine with your telling all telling the board, right? You have to start there. And then there is, I think there is no harm at all in saying we have a wonderfully generous gift from our board member so-and-so, right? If, as long as it's fine with the board member board member. There is nothing like, just like with a campaign chair, there is nothing like someone stepping up with their own commitment to get other people excited and to move forward. But make sure sometimes board members, if you have one or two board members who are far wealthier than the other board members, 
sometimes they're going to feel uncomfortable about about outing themselves in that way. So just be sure you check with that. Um, and your board member, your board may well ask questions about what is going to be required of us as board members in our campaign. Right. So you should be ready for that. If those questions, if those questions come up, um, you can defer it. You can say this is in the early stages. We are going to be working, you know, on developing a plan, you know, a plan and we'll be, you know, training you, you know, and so all of your questions will be answered. You can defer, but just be, be aware that every board member is worried that if one board member gave a million dollars and they can only give $500, $500, they're going to worry about, about whether they belong on that board. And you need to be prepared to put them at their ease. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, you may want to hold off on making that announcement. So think about the timing, right? Do you want to p- provide some training first? Do you want to finish the feasibility study first? Maybe plan that announcement of that big board leading pledge and board gift right before you're ready to ask your board members and you've explained to them what their roles and responsibilities are. Otherwise, it, it may trigger a panic. <laughs> Um, so use it to create momentum when the time is right. Yeah, I think that's a great, a great suggestion. Even if you do that, though, you have to be checking with the board member who's made the gift, because while on one hand, they may not want the gift announced. On the other hand, they may want the gift announced tomorrow to the board. Right? You don't know how people feel. Right. So you need to have this kind of that conversation. Andrea, let's jump down to Heather's question about the difference between a capacity campaign Uh, and a capital campaign. Yes. Yes. So here's the here's the the situation. If if we had the ability to change the way people use language and that turns out to be hard to do, what we would do in the capital campaign toolkit is. To, is that every one of these campaigns would be capacity campaigns because a campaign like we're talking about re- increases the capacity of the organization and a capital campaign to raise money for a building is just one way you can increase capacity. Now, that's if we if we had our druthers. Of course, we can't change the language that is deeply embedded in the way fundraisers think about this. So the word, the phrase capital campaign is largely, is broadly defined to include fundraising campaigns that move the organization forward, the springboard the organization to the next level of operation. And you can raise numerous, you can have numerous things on your list that you're going to raise money for. It can be a building or a renovation or a new program startup or equipment or land or um, or some some relatively small portion of an endowment, and that's a different different situation. You can raise money for some organizations raise money for what they call a spin down fund or um, something that makes them nimble. Some organizations have missions that require them to be nimble and they can raise money for a pot of pot of funds that they can use immediately when something comes up. Uh, land trusts, for example, right, have to be nimble. They have to be able to, I call them pounce funds. They have to be able to jump on opportunities because the opportunities won't last unless they have the money. So there are lots of things you can raise money for that increase your capacity 
to do work, right? To do your your work. Um, and and that all gets lumped together under the phrase capital campaign, kind of loosely defined. And if you want to get, you know, dicey about it, a cat, you can also think of a capital campaign as one where you're raising money to build a building. Or you can think about it as one where people give out of their capital instead of out of their checkbook. Now, that's a more confusing answer than you ever wanted. (laughs) All right. Listen, I just want to remind everybody, uh, I don't know if we're going to get to all the questions today, and some of them are fairly specific to your campaigns. So if you have a question that's specific to your campaign, do feel free to go to the Capital Campaign Toolkit website and sign up for a free strategy session. We would be happy to talk to you about your campaign and the specifics that you're dealing with individually. So go to capitalcampaigntoolkit.com, sign up to talk to an expert with our free strategy session, and we would be more than happy to answer any questions you have about your specific campaign situation. So I have a very quick answer for Amy's question, and I'm not even going to read it. I just want, Amy, I just want to tell you that you really are in the quiet phase of your campaign already. You just don't know it. People can actually include gifts going back. You can predate campaign gifts. If you, if you're, all you need is a date in your campaign policies to say gifts to, we're going to count gifts to this campaign if they are given at such and such a date, you know, after such and such a date. So you can define that you already are in the, in your campaign just by how you define that the start date and stop date of your campaign. So baby, you're already in the quiet phase. You just don't realize it. (laughs) All right. Uh, Sarah's asking about endowment fundraising. Um, Would you call a campaign to grow an endowment, a capacity campaign? and talk about your views and opinions on endowment fundraising. And I was just having a conversation with someone who wants to do a $25 million endowment campaign. The 25th anniversary. The 25th anniversary, (laughs) exactly. So listen, think about it from your donor's perspective. A lot of donors don't want to give to endowment because, you know, if they give a million dollars, only 5% of that annually gets used for current programs and services. And they may not want to lock up their money forever. They may want to say, you know what, I want to give a million dollars to help you really catapult your organization right now. So many donors do not want to give to endowment. So by just having an endowment campaign, you are alienating some donors or not giving them an opportunity to participate. And so I want you to think more broadly. I cannot believe that that you don't have current needs or current capacity needs that you could invest in things, build things, grow things, um, you know, whether it's your staff or your technology or training or branding, you know, grow your programs and services, how you reach clients and how you serve clients. And it doesn't, everybody, I know organizations want endowment, but really the number one way to grow your endowment is through a planned giving campaign. And that happens over time. So while an endowment is a piece of your campaign and should be a part of your campaign, 
it should not exclusively be a campaign because you're going to have a lot of donors that say, I'm not interested. No, thanks. So, Heather, um, if you apply for a strategy session, you can have your choice of speaking with one of us or speaking with Rich Quinn or um, Bosude Obadupo. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, you, you, you'll, you'll, be able to, you'll be able to pick. Sometimes it's on a rolling basis, depending on whose schedule is open first. But, but you, can, you can also make a request. And we talk to a lot of people and we always enjoy it. Uh, so I want to end. Can we talk about go to Heidi's question about why why we're in capital campaigns? Yeah, I think that's a perfect way to end. I was I was looking at Heidi's question. Let's read it. Uh, so Heidi's asking how we got into capital campaigns and why do we stay? Um, is it really diff a different type of fundraising and what appeals to us? So thank you for asking, Heidi. I don't think nobody asked that kind of question. That's fun. Exactly. It is fun. All right. You go first. I go first. So I, I have to admit to you all that I have always been in the capital campaign world since I began in this fundraising business, which was way back. And here's what I love about it. So I love that it is that it is so strategic I love that it's not like being on a, what do you call it? A, a wheel, a, a, hamster wheel. A, a hamster wheel. I I couldn't stand finishing up a year of fundraising and having the clocks, having the meter set to zero again and having to get going on the same darn thing all over again. It would drive me totally nuts. I love, I love the fact that that, that capital campaigns focus on growing and increasing an organization's impact and how interesting and exciting it is. And I love the fact that, that because the stakes of capital campaigns are so high, that organizations are in a place where they're willing to take risks and to make change. They're not in a rut. They're, they're really willing to do things that they aren't willing to do when the you know, when they're looking to just to raise their annual operating funds again. So all of those are the things that that keep have kept me in the capital campaign business. And, and uh, you know, there are buildings all over the place or organizations all over the place that when I drive by them or am reminded of them, I just feel proud to have been a little part of having moved that organization to the next level of operation. So Heidi, I'm wondering why you're asking that question. My guess is that either you're a consultant or thinking about being a consultant. And I have to tell you something that we never talk about on Toolkit Talks is that we actually have a special version of the, of the Capital Campaign Toolkit just for consultants to help their clients and to help them grow their businesses. So if that's somewhere layered deep down uh, behind your question, if you're considering being a Capital Campaign consultant or anybody else, go to the Capital Campaign Toolkit website and there under toolkit on the menu bar, there is a special section just for consultants who want to get into capital campaigns or grow their capital campaign business. Um, but I have to tell you that, you know, how did I get into campaigns? Well, as a development director, I did a couple of campaigns. That was several decades ago. As a consultant, of course, I did a few campaigns when I was a solopreneur, but really 
Um, Andrea and I have been for years had been trying to figure out the best way that we could work on a meaningful project together. And it turned out to be the capital campaign toolkit. Um, and so that's when I really uh, full time got into capital campaigns, which is just uh, a few I years. I lured her. I lured her into <laughs> yes. uh, just over three years ago now. And really, I mean, as Andrea said, capital campaigns are, you know, the fundraising rocket fuel of fundraising. Annual fund is sort of the, the regular go around, come around. It's critical and important, but um, a capital campaign jet propels your fundraising like no other type of fundraising. So, you know, we, we think it's absolutely where it's at. So, all right. Um, okay. I think, I think we're good for today. You want to, you want to, oh, I have a one? couple other little questions. So Katie, I can, and Katie Tilford, I can answer your question really quickly. I think your campaign, you're, you're, you have a, you have a master plan, a landscape architect's doing a master plan. It's going to involve a whole bunch of stuff and the, your campaign should be shaped around all of that. It should be the big picture, not little pieces of it. It, you should start by thinking about your campaign. Well, if we could raise X number of dollars to do this entire master plan, or if, it, if you're going to phase the plan over 20 years, right? Maybe this is a master plan that's going to be phased in over 20 years. Then you should look at what the phases are and you might do a campaign for each phase. But you don't want to may have too many little, little bitty campaigns. You want, you want your campaign to be inspiring and inspiring so when it's done and the buildings are built people are excited to have to have given so don't don't break it down into little pieces when you have a big inspiring campaign goal you'd be amazed at how people will give big and inspiring gifts excellent all right just a quick reminder as we wrap up Bring your board members to next week toolkit talk. Go to capitalcampaigntoolkit.com and up should pop a box that says that invites them to toolkit talks. They do need to sign up so that they get the link and that they get the Zoom link and reminders. And we would love for them to submit questions. So discuss with them in advance, maybe what questions they they might ask. Um, and uh, hopefully they won't hold back. And we're going to dedicate the whole the whole hour next time to board members. Toolkittalks.com does work, Amy. I oh, good. It's yes. for some reason just spinning on my yes. computer. Oh, All right. So they can, go to, they can go to toolkittalks.com or capital campaign toolkit to sign up. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. It's the highlight of our week. Andrea, thank you for doing this as always. Thanks, Amy. Always fun. Always fun. Your questions, you guys, you ask such great questions. You just make it fun and easy for us to do this. And we really appreciate each and every one of you. So we will, we will see you next week. Thanks for joining Amy and Andrea for today's All About Capital Campaigns. To learn more about them and their work together, go to capitalcampaigntoolkit.com.